It's Friday, October 29th, 2021, and from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, this is the Pennsylvania Legacies Podcast. I'm Josh Rollerson. Plastic is everywhere. Food packaging, clothes, cars, you name it. It's endlessly useful, but it also tends to end up in places where it shouldn't be, like oceans, lakes, soil, produce, and even our bodies. The prevalence of plastic pollution in the world's oceans is well-known and increasingly well-studied and documented. However, until relatively recently, no one was paying much attention to plastics in freshwater. Dr. Sherry Mason is Director of Sustainability at Penn State's Erie Campus. As a researcher, she helped put the issue of plastic pollution in freshwater, specifically the Great Lakes, on the map. And for the last decade, she's been researching microplastics, those tiny pieces of plastic, sometimes barely even visible to the naked eye, that pose serious risks to our environment and human health. We're going to talk about that on today's episode in conversation with Sherry Mason of Penn State Erie. Dr. Mason, welcome to Pennsylvania Legacies. Oh, thank you for having me. When did you first become aware of microplastics pollution? What made you want to study it? I first heard about plastic pollution when I was um, actually in graduate school. It was kind of as I was transitioning. I just got my PhD and was transitioning to being a professor of chemistry um, at the State University of New York at Fredonia. Um, and I had heard about the discovery um, of the what is now affectionately referred to as the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Um, and I was teaching one of the, the courses I was assigned was a, a course on consumer chemistry. And I remember when they assigned it to me, I went, I don't actually know about anything about like real chemistry. I love, you, know, you, you get your PhD and you're, I was in this world of theory. Um, so it really kind of pushed me to kind of think about chemistry in a new way. And um, having heard about you know, this collection of, of plastic out in the oceans, I really utilized that as a tool in this class to, to talk about, you know, kind of consumer goods and understanding what these molecules are and then kind of the aftermath, you know, kind of thinking of it in the, the, the lifetime of plastic. But I hadn't really thought about it with regard to my own, I don't know, it's a weird thing, like with regard to my own life. About 10 years ago, um, I was invited to participate in an environmental science course aboard this tall ship, the U.S. Brig Niagara, um, whose home port is actually Erie, Pennsylvania, where I now live. You know, I, it was the first time I had been out sailing in the Great Lakes, honestly, and I was, I was just mesmerized. I, I really had no concept of how big and how beautiful the Great Lakes are, which sounds extremely silly and naive, but you know, I'm not from this area um, and I, I couldn't sleep. And I just kept staring at the water and the sky. And um, as I was watching the water hit the, the wooden hull of the vessel, I was just immediately taken back to like these um, documentaries I had watched about plastic pollution in the world's oceans. And I, I wondered, well, I've been teaching about this for like 10 years. What, what do we know about plastic pollution right here? And when I got back to shore, I did a literature review and was, was really struck that there was, there was nothing in the scientific literature about plastic pollution in freshwater. And so, you know, I talked to my, my colleagues who were co-teaching this class with me and I was like, hey, what do you think about the idea of next year? We just throw a net out and see what we catch. <laughs> It was, you know, it really started in like the most simple, this most simplistic way. And, and it wasn't focused on microplastic. I actually expected that what we would be pulling in 
was bags and bottles and straws and big plastic items. It just, you know, science is science. And, and that's just not the way the data turned out. You know, in fact, 75% of what we pulled in was less than five millimeters in size, what is referred to as microplastics. So that came as a surprise. Oh, huge surprise. Um, not, not what I expected. I really thought because we're upstream from the oceans that what we would be finding would be bigger than what is typically found in the oceans. And instead, um, at that point in time, you know, the, the field of microplastics was, was pretty um, nascent. There just hadn't been that kind of data collected with regard to the oceans either. Um, and so it was really kind of a surprise that, that so much of it was so incredibly small. Um, and so, of course, then the question is why? you know, and just starts you down this, this, uh, spiral. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, and here we are. Um, what, why do you think, I mean, it's, it's a new field, as you said, certainly plastic has been around for a while. People have been aware of plastic as an environmental problem, but microplastics, it seems like it's only pretty recently gotten through to a lot of people's consciousness kind of, why do, why do you think it is? Why hasn't there been more attention paid to, to microplastics specifically? Is it just because we haven't had the, the, the science to really talk much about it or what? Yeah. I mean, I think that's exactly it. You know, I mean, the, the first literature of finding plastic pollution was in the 1970s, but it didn't really make it as an area of active scientific research until the dawn of this century, right? It was really starting in 2000. So this is a pretty young field. Um, I think those first studies that were coming out, you know, weren't really looking for small things. They were looking for bigger things. Um, and it's, you know, kind of as the, the field develops, you know, this is how science works, right? We get our techniques get better, our instrumentation gets better, and we're able to look at smaller and smaller sizes. And so I think it was kind of, you know, a lot of work in freshwater systems, finding these microplastics that in some ways kind of pushed even the oceanic studies to be looking at these smaller size classes. And then the awareness that, yeah, okay, if this stuff doesn't biodegrade, of course, it's just going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And you can even get down to nano-sized particles, um, which is kind of really the, the front end of the research uh, now. So what are the like the prevalent types, forms? I, I realize there's like different shapes that you're that you're keeping track of. What are we talking about here? What are the different um, particles and, and where do they come from? So there's basically five categories of, of shapes or morphologies as the, the, the science <laughs> uses. That's the word we use. Um, fragments, which you know, kind of obviously broke down from something that was bigger, right? So it could be, you know, we've all had this happen, right? You're, you're playing with some plastic item, a clip and it breaks, right? So that little piece or like your weed eating and those little pieces that come off of your weed eater would almost be fragments as well. Um, although many of those could be categorized also as lines or fibers. Um, and so this kind of gets into the fact that the morphologies are somewhat subjective and it's, it's really, you know, right now we're trying to put this on a firmer foundation. Um, but fragments are one pellets, which are round pieces of, of plastic. So these would be the microbeads would be in this category, but also pre-production plastics, um, otherwise known as nurdles would fall into this categories. The difference there just being the size. Um, and then fibers or lines. So this could be fishing lines. It could be fibers that come off of our clothes. It could be, you know, uh, cigarette filters would fall into this category as well. Foams, um, which really kind of come down to styrofoams. Um, again, 
Um, cigarette filters before they shred into all the fibers would be in the foam category. Tire rubber would be in the foam category. And, and then films, and that would be your plastic bags and your grocery bags would fall into that category. So when you think about how uh, you know people have thought about plastic in the past as an environmental contaminant, it's you know it's again it's it's sort of in the context of litter. It's like big visible things that I can see that are an eyesore. Um, I think we've been trained, maybe directly or indirectly, to think of plastic as kind of inert, like it's it's food packaging. We we drink beverages from plastic bottles. And we we don't think of it as something that's like chemically active, you know, certainly with our own physiology. Right. But that is I mean, that's really the concern here. What is what is the, um, you know, the biological impact of these materials in our environment? That's a good question. And and plastic itself, you know, the, the polymer that makes up plastic. That's really kind of the front end of kind of understanding the human health impacts. Are those inert? Are they not? And that we don't really know that. Um, what we know more about is um, that plastics contain chemicals. So to make plastics moldable, to give them colors, to, to, to keep them from degrading under the action of sunlight, right? We embed them with you know, 300 plus different chemicals. Um, and these chemicals we do know have a human health impacts. Flame retardants, which is a huge topic right now, right? Everybody's talking about PFOS, PFOS, PFOS. PFOS is in plastic. You know, I mean, so those beverages that you're drinking out of plastic bottles, you're probably ingesting some PFOS as a, as a result of that, because those chemicals, while they're in plastic, they're not chemically bound to the plastic, they're not chemically bound to the polymers, and so they move out, they migrate out. So that's the, the reality, right? We, we know that, in fact, plastics are not inert. Um, they, these chemicals that are in and and on plastics will migrate into the food chain and ultimately into us. And we know that those chemicals have very well-known human health impacts from, from you know, um, certain types of cancers, um, ovarian cancer and breast cancer in women, prostate cancer in men, to um, really kind of impeding our ability to reproduce. Um, there's a great book that came out earlier this year called Countdown by Dr. Shauna Swan that's all about this. The fact that sperm counts are going down, sperm motility is going down, um, pregnancy viability in women is going down. And these are all related to these known chemicals that are out in the environment. And one of the ways that they come into us is through our usage of this material of plastic. So it's, it's important, you know, this, <laughs> in fact, you know, the United Nation puts plastics only second to climate change in terms of the ability of our species to be able to survive. That's how critical this is. So this isn't just an aesthetic, oh, it's not pretty when you see a bag sitting in a tree. No, this is actually kind of critically important to our survival. And not just in terms of how, you know, these materials interact with living things, but also I understand there's some kind of a multiplier effect or there, there's ways in which it interacts with other materials that might be in the water, other pollutants that, that make those things that much more harmful. Yeah. So I talked about the chemicals that are in plastics embedded in the manufacturer, but as plastics are out in the environment, other chemicals that are released will naturally adhere to the outside of plastic. Um, and these are things like, you know, polychlorinated biphenols, PCBs for short, um, polyaromatic hydrocarbons, which are released in combustion processes, most notably coal-fired power plants. So these 
are released into the environment. They're airborne initially. They come down in the rain. They end up in places like the Great Lakes. And even though they're in the water, they don't really want to be in the water. They're, you know, as a, from a chemistry standpoint, they're hydrophobic, water-fearing molecules. And so they will look for ways to basically get out of the water if they can. And plastic is a perfect surface for them. They love it. It's also hydrophobic. So they stick to plastic to get out of the water. And then that plastic particle, if it's ingested, it just moved those polyaromatic hydrocarbons into people. And PHs, by the way, were the first group of compounds that were shown to be carcinogenic. So, you know, these are, these are chemicals that, again, have known human health impacts and, and plastics are one way that they get moved into kind of the, the living skin of the earth, you know, not just humans, but any kind of aquatic organism and plants and the fruits and vegetables that, that we rely on. You are known for, you know, bringing this lens to bear on freshwater in particular, and you got your start in Lake Erie, as you mentioned. Can you tell us about, uh, like, what, what do you know, what do we collectively know about the state of microplastics contamination in Pennsylvania waterways, either the, the, the Great Lakes or our rivers and streams? Are we, or is this part of the country, unique in that respect? We're not unique. I mean, sadly, you know, it doesn't matter where we look in the world, we find microplastics, right? So you can be at the, the top of the Andes, you can be at the bottom of the Marianas Trench and, and you find microplastics. So we're not special, but, and there's still a lot that we don't know, honestly, with regard to, to Pennsylvania waterways. So, you know, I, I did get my start in, in the Great Lakes. Um, we do know that all five of the Great Lakes have anywhere between 1 billion and 5 billion pieces of plastic floating on the surface of the lake. And they probably have even more in the sediment. Um, and that data is still kind of ongoing. We've looked at major tributaries in the Great Lakes. Unfortunately, none of the major tributaries into the Great Lakes go through Pennsylvania. But there was a really interesting uh, citizen science study that was done, um, uh, that was coordinated through Penn Environment that just came out earlier this year. Um, so they went and during COVID and were collecting samples from all across Pennsylvania. Um, and every single stream that they sampled, they found microplastics. Um, fragments being the most common. Um, I think pellets were the least common and the fibers were, were probably, um, actually fibers might've been the most common. So fibers and fragments tend to, to, tend to dominate. They tend to dominate the upper Great Lakes as well. Lake Erie and Lake Ontario, it tends to be fragments and pellets more than the fibers, but up in Lake Superior, fibers are the dominant type of, of microplastic. Ultimately, you know, we need to be using less of this material, but that's just ultimately the reality. And this is always where I kind of put in, I am not anti-plastic, I am anti-stupid plastic. <laughs> um, as a chemist, I can understand the, the attractiveness of plastic. It is an extremely strong material that is at the same time lightweight, and there's no other material like that in nature. Right. It has the strength of metal, but it's like a tenth of the weight. And, and it's so incredibly moldable if you add all those chemicals to it. <laughs> it's so incredibly moldable. So it, I understand like as an industrial chemist, it's a very attractive material. I just think that we need to do a lot more thinking in advance about what should we be making out of this material? Do we really need to make a plastic bag that's used for 12 minutes out of a material that's going to last for 500 years? Maybe not. You know, that, that's a problem. Do we really need 
to make plastic straws that are used for a half hour out of a material that's going to last 500 years. You know, they, these are the things that we need to be thinking about. Can we find some other way to take our food to go without it being wrapped in styrofoam, which is the least recyclable plastic type? So I really think we just need to re-examine. We, we need less types of plastic. We need less usage of plastic. We need better design of products that do utilize plastic. And on this, I'll, I'll point to like a product. So say a bottle of water, which by the way, you should never drink bottled water. <laughs> but, but let's say you have a bottle of water in front of you. The bottle is made out of one plastic. The wrapper is made out of a different plastic and the, the cap is made out of a third type of plastic. How the heck are you gonna recycle that? And so this is really where legislation can be so critically important. If you're gonna make a package, it needs to be one type of plastic so that we can actually recycle it. And it needs to be a plastic that is actually recyclable. So this would be polyethylene or polypropylene. Get rid of the PVC, you know, anything that has chlorine in it is really difficult. Get rid of the, the polystyrene, um, these are, are materials that are just incredibly difficult, basically impossible to recycle. We can't operate that way anymore. We are bumping against these limits. And we have to, as a species, if we want to survive, recognize that and rethink it. We go, okay, these are the limits that are in place. This doesn't keep us from having a society, but we need to operate within these limits. Well, so looking at maybe more immediately practical approaches that you mentioned, uh, I mean, it, it really comes down to getting rid of a lot of the single-use plastics. And I, and I think, I wonder if the way that we have all been trained and acculturated toward recycling bears a little bit of the blame to the extent that people don't have a clear sense of what actually is recyclable and what that means. I think a lot of us are, with the best of intentions, dutifully rinsing out our clamshell salad containers or whatever. Which can't be recycled. Yeah. Recycling is such, it's such a double-edged sword, right? On one hand, you know, if you can recycle what you can recycle, you should recycle, recycle your metal, recycle your glass, recycle your paper and, and plastics that can be recycled. Absolutely. Put them in your bin, but, but don't wish cycle, right? Don't say, oh, I wish this could be recycled. So I'm going to put it in my bin. No. You just contaminated that whole stream. And this is now why China, you know, the whole national sword policy that China put into place is because of that contamination rate um, was so incredibly high. You can't blame them, honestly. The other problem with, with recycling is, you know, you see these top 10 lists, like top 10 ways to, to solve plastic. And the first one is always recycling and people stop there. They don't reduce, they don't reuse, they go to recycling and that's it. Well, it's, they, they're listed in that order for that reason, you know, and, and then on top of that is the, the fact that the recycling system is so messed up. How do we not have a national policy on how we're dealing with our trash? How has that not happened yet? Why can I move literally 40 miles down the road and now all of a sudden, what I could recycle, I can't, and what I could can, I couldn't, you know, it's, it's all messed up. It needs to be consistent. So then people know what to put in the blue bin, you know, and we need to be adding composting to that as well, because another solution to, to plastics is are really, truly biodegradable plastics. Polylactic acid, 
is for some items, I think it makes a lot of sense, but that only works if you have um, an industrial composting facility. And if you're collecting it and taking it to the industrial composting facility, something that's made out of polylactic acid that ends up in Lake Erie is not gonna decompose, right? And so also looking for things that if they get released into the environment can actually biodegrade would be really nice as well. Well, you said composting. It, it reminded me of this last weekend. I was out doing yard work and screening some, you know, homemade compost in the backyard. And pretty much every time I do that, I'm picking out little bits of fiber from a Halloween decoration from at least eight years ago. That's like like the fake spider web that was on the other side of the house, but somehow it's in all of the soil, all of the compost everywhere. And it, and it reminded me, like, we've been talking about water, but what about soil contamination? What are the concerns with uh, microplastics and just plastics in the soil? Oh, it's in the soil for sure. And I've bought compost and found plastic in it as well. And like, like pretty good sized chunks, like where you're spreading it out and you're like, why is there a fragment the size of my fingernail in my compost? You know, so, so yeah, it's, it's definitely in the soil. And they, I mentioned, you know, earlier, well, that it, it's making its way into um, our fruits and vegetables and into our, you know, into to plants. Um, it asked, it also, um, has been shown that it, it gets pushed down through the soil and it ends up in aquifers. So I know in some people, you know, they're on well water and they, you know, and it, well water probably is cleaner than most, you know, say reservoir water or, you know, Lake Erie, um, water, even though it's, it goes through a water treatment plant, probably well water is, is a little bit cleaner, but you're still going to have plastic in it because it makes its way through the soil and it ends up in our aquifers. So, this isn't, you know, we're not going to filter our way out of this. We really kind of have to hit it at the, the head. We have to hit it at the start. We have to recognize this is a problem and, and be thinking of it that far upstream. Looking at those three peers of reduce, reuse, and recycle, the first one, reduction, how do we accomplish that on a mass scale? And I'm thinking in terms of policy and legislation, you've seen a lot of jurisdictions pursue plastic bag bans, cracking down on, on plastic straws. Is that a meaningful intervention to you? Is like, is that a good place to start? What what kind of a dent yeah. would that make in the problem if it if it were widespread? Absolutely. I mean, we use in this just in the United States, we use like a trillion bags a day. I mean, it's insane. <laughs> so yeah, bag bans, uh, straw you know straw bans, um, you know, encouraging people to 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 make changes away from charging people for disposable cups as opposed to giving rebates for using reusable ones, that would be huge too, right? You go to Starbucks every day, that paper cup is not just paper. It's lined in plastic. So all those chemicals that are in the plastic lining, those are going into your coffee and you're drinking it. You know, so if, if we charge 10 cents for that paper cup, instead of giving me 10 cents off for bringing in my reusable, you're going to see people, more people switching to the reusable. Um, so those policies are great on a local level. There is national legislation that's currently, that has been reintroduced. It's a, it's a suite of bills under the, the, the whole suite is called the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act. But there's individual components in there that are, are slowly making their way through. Um, and one of those is, is actually um, putting a, a requirement of a certain amount of recycled plastic content on items that are made out of plastic um, so that it has to be 30% recycled plastic, post-consumer recycled plastic. And that seems silly. It's that that's how you get recycling to really work. 
You know, the same thing happened with paper. I mean, I think a lot of us nowadays, we don't really think about the fact that most paper that we buy has, you know, 80 to 100% post-consumer fiber in it. Well, that, you know, I was a child when that wasn't the case. And it was the federal government who came in and said, all paper that we buy has to have at least 20% post-consumer content. And all of a sudden, recycling was viable. <laughs> it happened like overnight, all of the issues around it, like just disappeared. You know, they found solutions for how to get rid of the inks and this and that, you know, what all those things that were standing in the way of paper recycling being viable, suddenly it became viable. And the same thing happened, will happen if we do the same thing with regard to plastics. But, you know, there's other pieces of that break free from plastic pollution. One of them is extended corporate responsibility. And so that also kind of gets into that piece of reduction, where if a company is responsible for the plastic that they create, they are going to suddenly look at that plastic in a very different way. Um, so legislation is a, is a huge piece of this. Your representatives, honestly, they do represent you. If you tell them what it is you want, they will, you know, they will respond. And if they hear a lot more people saying, I'm worried about jobs, I'm worried about jobs, I'm worried about jobs, then that's what they're going to vote for. If they hear us coming back and saying, we want jobs, but we want this too. We want a clean environment because I like to go kayaking and I like to go hiking and I want to, you know, go hunting and not have a plastic bag in my elk or whatever, you know, and these are the, the realities, you know, so you, you have to make your voice heard and there is legislation out there and encourage people to really um, advocate and push for that. When you mention uh, corporate responsibility, can you think of any examples of companies that are trying to do the right thing or projects that are really interesting or innovative in that area? Yeah, um, Patagonia, actually, um, with regard, to, I, I think I mentioned earlier that microfibers are probably the most um, kind of prominent type of plastic, environmental plastic particle that we find. It's in the air, it's in the water, it's in the soil, it's just freaking everywhere. And Patagonia is well aware of this. Um, and they're actually doing a lot with regard to, on every end, you know, I mean, they're part of, of policy discussions, you know, there were Save Our Seas 2.0 Act that was passed last year that's currently being implemented. Part of that is, is writing up a white paper about microfibers and they're at the table. They're like, yep, this is an issue. And these are the problems, right? that we don't have standards on how we measure these things. And we don't have standards on, you know, how we go about determining this. So they're, they're there at the table. They're also, they have, you know, researchers, they're working on kind of how do we reduce our microfiber shedding from our materials? Um, in addition to the fact that they do a lot with regard to incorporating post-consumer plastic into their items so that, you know, if you're wearing a jacket that's, that's plastic, because most you know, I mean, that's the reality. Most outdoor gear, actually, I have a, an article coming out soon um, on this, right? The fact that outdoor gear has gotten insanely light and insanely durable and, and yet more protective during my lifetime. And that's because of plastic, you know, that's the reality. I don't know that I could have gone backpacking in the middle of, you know, the Rocky Mountains 50 years ago, but I can now. And that's that, that that is the reality. It's because of plastic. And so they they are incorporating that post-consumer plastic into their items, but at trying to do so 
within the frame of mind of also understanding that post-consumer plastic tends to be less durable and so it will tend to shed more and so they're they're really kind of thinking that out so i give them kudos for that it's it's a it's a tough nut to crack um for sure so as a researcher where do you see the most need for more information what needs to be studied next what are you looking at studying next (laughs) so much um you know i think we still don't have enough data on kind of the the prevalence of microplastics within the environment. So looking at all of these different media, also looking at all different types of food sources, um, and then trying to get some kind of a mass balance so we can really kind of understand, like, for example, with regard to the Great Lakes, you hear this this statistic about, you know, 10,000 metric tons get dumped into the Great Lakes every year. Um, As my colleague, um, (laughs) Matt Hoffman, who's studied that that's based on, and and he knows this, we talk about this, I love him, I love his work, but it's based on a lot of assumptions, right? It's based upon an assumption of how much waste is mismanaged and that it happens in these urban locations. And we're pretty much ignoring everybody else. And do we actually have good numbers on how much waste is mismanaged? We really don't. And so, you know, kind of getting that on firmer footing. So we can do this mass balance in terms of what's coming in, what's going out, and really kind of calculating that. And part of that is so that we can understand how much we're ingesting so that we can do some better understanding with regard to the human health impacts. And there's so much that we still have to understand with regard to the human health impacts, which is why, you know, kind of with regard to this material, I really strongly suggest taking the precautionary principle. We can't wait to have all of the science, all of the data in. We have enough to know it's concerning, right? I mean, there's a study came out earlier this year showing microplastics on both sides of the placental boundary. Just last week, a study came out showing that they analyzed um, baby uh, feces and, and showed that it was loaded with microplastics. So we know it's making its way into us. Do we really have to know all of the nitty gritty details of exactly what it's doing before we go, hmm, maybe we should use less plastic? No, I don't think we do. I mean, I think kind of innately, we all understand that eating plastic is probably not a good thing for us. You know, there's connections starting to be made with Alzheimer's disease, which incidentally, I called about 10 years ago that there's probably going to be connection there. (laughs) When you think about how insulatory plastic is, right? We wrap wires with plastic because it's a great insulator. What's going to happen if it ends up in your brain? We know it's in our brains. So what's, you know, how, how is it going to disrupt those kind of signals, that messaging? And so, you know, we're starting to get that data in. Do we have to have all that data before we really kind of reevaluate our relationship with this material? I don't think we do. I think we have enough to, to take a precautionary approach. Can you point people in any particular direction if their curiosity has been piqued by this topic or they want to do something or, or learn more? Is there a good resource that you could recommend? Uh, Beyond Plastics is a great um, website, great um, organization. Um, the Plastic Pollution Coalition is another great organization. Um, so both of those, I think, are, are really good to look at. Go to their websites. You can go to my website if you're looking for um, how to make changes. I have a, a section on my website called Be the Change, um, which gives people kind of options like I buy my shampoo and conditioner in stainless steel reusable containers. You know, I buy, my sunglasses are made out of bamboo. You know, my straw, I have a metal straws, you know, cleaning products that, that come in tablets. You know, so there's just so many options out there for people to be making these changes in their own life. 
Um, and as they're doing that, to be advocating for changes to happen on a, on a national level. Because I, I do understand that, you know, I am blessed that I have the resources to be able to do these things. And not everybody does. And I, I see that. So, you know, we need things to happen at a national level. But I also believe in people making the changes in their personal life, too. Well, Dr. Sherry Mason from Penn State, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Sherry Mason is Director of Sustainability at the Penn State Erie campus and an expert on microplastics pollution in the Great Lakes. You can check out her TED Talk on our website, peckpa.org. We'll include that in the show notes for this episode of Pennsylvania Legacies. Look for links and more information on some of the things we talked about today. And be sure to check out some of our past episodes. They're all there on the website, or if you prefer, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. We're available pretty much anywhere podcasts are heard. Wherever and however you find us, we'd appreciate a rating and review on whatever platform you're using. Your feedback is always welcome. You can get in touch with us via the website, again, peckpa.org, on Facebook at Pennsylvania Environmental Council, and on Twitter, we're at P-E-C-P-A. That's it for this episode. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with more Pennsylvania Legacies. Until then, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson. Thanks for listening.